We thank you, Father, that you are reigning upon the throne of our lives, Almighty God. And it's our heart's desire to see our family members, all of our family members, having you ruling and reigning on the hearts, the minds, their emotions. And Father, we just humbly ask, Almighty God, that you will begin to speak to our family members, those who are married into the family, cousins, nieces, nephews. Almighty God, we just pray for these individuals. You know them all by name at this time. And Father, we just pray that your Ruach would descend upon them and bring them into your presence, acknowledging Yeshua as their Messiah. May their names be inscribed in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, Almighty God. We thank you for this provision, Almighty God. Father, we repent where we have failed in not being a, a righteous and a holy uh, testimony, living out our lives before them, Almighty God. We ask, Father, that you would draw other people who are believers to cross their paths, to begin to befriend them, not just to bring them into the kingdom, but truly to, to befriend them, Almighty God. Father, you know where they are, where their heart is, and we pray that the Spirit of the living God would reveal the truth of their eternal destination, whether or not it is with you or not with you, Almighty God. Bring this upon their hearts, Father. Let them know about the love of God the Father through God the Son, Yeshua, being demonstrated by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, Almighty God. We have family members, Father, who have not come to acknowledge Yeshua as their Messiah. We know as our lives are fleeting upon this earth, Almighty God, it's our heart's desire, Almighty God, for every family member, an extended family member, those who are married into the family would come to a saving knowledge of who Messiah Yeshua is, and that he, by the Spirit of the living God, would reveal his plan, and his purpose for their lives, Almighty God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is part three of Acts of Yeshua's Emissaries, chapter 17. So if you'd like to turn with me there, blessed be the name of the Lord. We're going a little bit deeper in the scripture here. And so as this is played out, I, I really believe that we should have it in the flow, because as we read God's word, we have to be thinking, what is the Spirit of the living God speaking to? In the time frame that it was originally spoken and later recorded, all right, so that we will understand how it spoke to the people in the context of that setting for that time, and how the word of God speaks to us today, and how we can properly interpret what it says and apply it to our daily lives. This is an ongoing teaching in all our lives, that the Spirit of the living God allows God's Word to be revealed to us, but how are we to apply it? Is it to be a life lesson that someone else has lived out? Or is it a life lesson that now the Spirit of living God wants us to live out? Now, we are not the people that are living in that time. There are other believers and non-believers and how they received 
and interpreted and had the revelation of what God's word was and how they of their own desire either chose to apply God's word to their life and to receive Yeshua as their Messiah and then, then gain eternal life, that is a person's free choice. And so if we look at from this perspective as we go through the scripture today, think about, and just pause for a second, think about these individuals who are hearing the good news proclaimed to them for the very first time. Both those in the Jewish community, in these synagogues that Paul and Silas and Timothy are now going to and proclaiming the good news and slowly a veil is being removed from their eyes. But think of also those who have been walking in darkness. They did not have the revelation of who Adonai is and that even God had a plan for them. They were lost in the chaos of paganism. These people outside the commonwealth of Israel. And so there is a dark veil before their eyes because they don't even have the Tanakh as the Old Testament as a resource to them. They were just given all the speculation of what was going on, how the earth was created, why they existed, and what, what God there was. From these people, the, the people from Athens, these Greek people, they had multiple, multiple gods. And their gods did not have their best interest for their lives. And so we're going to delve into that right now. So now think about this as you hear these words. And kind of try and place yourself there, but know this. This is not you. This was written and recorded and given to a specific people at a specific time and setting. But can we apply the truth, God's word, which does not return void? Absolutely. But we're to listen to the spirit of the living God who leads us into all truth and how to apply the truth to our lives. Let us begin. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. After passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Shaul and Silas came to where Thessalonica. I've referred to you in the past to continue to look at the maps in your Bibles, okay? We are so blessed these days to have so many different maps and resources, okay? Because the people that were hearing the book of Acts being read to them as Luke had time in the future to write all these things down. They may have heard of where these places were, but most likely they never traveled there themselves. They never had an opportunity. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, a few uh, centuries ago, a lot of times people would never even live, uh, move from three to five miles from the place that they were born. They would live out their lives and then die. So now, Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, and Silas, they're being sent out by the Spirit of the living God to bring the good news to both the Jew first and to the nations. And so let us continue here. 
after passing through Anaphilius and Apollonia, Shaul and Sila came to Thessalonica. Hopefully you found that on your map. This is not in the present day land of Israel. Okay? This is outside of that. Okay? This is now in what is modern day Greece. So let us go forward here. Where there was a synagogue, according to his usual practice, Shaul went in, and on three Sabbaths, he gave him drashes from the Tanakh, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and raise from the dead. Now, this was, to them, brand new revelation. Because they were waiting for what? For Messiah, when he comes... He's going to deliver us from all our oppressors. All those who have control over our lives. This was hidden in the Tanakh. God's plan. But the veil had to be removed. Because as they interpreted scripture, they had a certain bent. That Messiah would come and he would be a deliverer. So let us move forward here explaining and proving that Messiah had to suffer and raise again from the dead. To them, this was like unheard of. What are you talking about? And that this, Yeshua, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Messiah. Okay, going forward in verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and threw their lot with Shaul and Silah as did, did many Greek men who were God-fearers. We went to detail they were. These were Gentiles who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did not convert to Judaism. They worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there was a wall, a partition of separation from them becoming part of the commonwealth of Israel. See, they were kind of like on the fence there. They could, come, could not come to salvation of Messiah until what? Until Messiah had come and died and rose from the dead. Let's go forward in the scriptures. So of the Jews, some of the Jews were persuaded and threw their lot in with Shaul and Silah, as did many Greek men who were God-fearers, and not a few of the leading women. Now on to verse 5. But the unbelieving Jews grew jealous. Are they unbelieving in Judaism? No. They're unbelieving that Yeshua is the promised Messiah. And why are they becoming jealous? Because they could not stand and debate with Shaul. Why? Because the spirit of the living God was speaking through him. Let's go forward here. And so what happens? They turn to their humanity and they became jealous. Let's go forward. So they got together some vicious men from the riffraff hanging around in the market square and collected a crowd and started a riot in the city there. So now let's dig a little bit deeper here. I'm going to go on to verse uh, 6. But when they didn't 
But when they didn't uh, find them, because they're searching for whom? For Shaul and Silas and Timothy, but they can't find them. They dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city and authorities. And as they referenced them to brothers, these were the Jews that were jealous, the unbelieving Jews, that got these men who were most likely Gentiles, got them all worked up, and then had them go, and they were going through Jason's house, and they were searching for Shaul, Silas, and Timothy. This was taking place. But it says in verse 17, 6, but when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, some of their fellow Jews, who believed that Yeshua was the Messiah, before the city authorities. Now, the city authorities there are not the Jewish people. This isn't Jerusalem. They're not being brought before the Sanhedrin. These are pagan uh, leaders of this city in Thessalonica. Let's go forward here. And they shouted, these men who have turned the whole world upside down have now come here too. See, we got to look at everything in its proper perspective. We got to stop. We have to reread the scripture, sometimes up to seven times. So we can properly interpret what's going on here. This isn't in the land of Israel. This is not the Sanhedrin. This is these pagan leaders, the mayor, and other men of influence, men of authority in the city of Thessalonica. So let's dig a little bit deeper here. Jason was Jewish. For Shaul and Sila would not have needlessly offended the Jewish community by lodging with a Gentile. All right? Many, now going on, many Greek-speaking Jews have Greek names. All right? My English name is Frank. My Hebrew name is Ephraim. Alan has a English name. Most likely, Alan has a Jewish name going forward. Okay? Many Greek-speaking Jews had Greek names. Okay? Moving forward. Now I'm going to quote from someone you probably never heard about. His name is I. Howard Marshall. He says this, that since Jason is Jewish, his Jewish name may have been Joshua. Why? Because with Jason, as somewhat similar sounding in the Greek, okay, And so this name, Jason, would be used in the Greek environment. Okay? So, going forward. It's like this thinking also prevails today in the Jewish diaspora. Hebrew and local language names are often chosen to resemble one another. Okay? So, going forward. Like Bruce and Baruch. Okay, Josephus, you've probably heard of him before. 
He was a, a Jewish historian who later became part of the Roman culture. He writes in the second century before the common era that one high priest, the Kohen Gadol Joshua, changed his name legally over to Jason. And where is that found? In the antiquities of the Jews. Who was that written by? By Josephus here. And so here we see, by not knowing the full context and the history, and even common practice today, many Jewish men and women will have a name of the current language of the country that they live or the environment they live in. And also, they will also be giving a Hebrew name. So now moving, moving forward here, back to Acts 17. And you see all these details, a lot of people don't understand because they do not come from a Hebraic mindset or Hebraic culture. And we have to take all these into context. Because later in the scripture here, we'll be seeing Rav Shaul proclaiming the good news by not even mentioning the Tanakh to a, a pagan audience. Why? Because they have no reference points. They don't know what the scriptures of the Tanakh say. They don't believe in the prophets. And so Rav Shaul, by the leading of the Spirit of the living God, reaches into their culture and draws out godly truths. Because you know what's amazing? If you study cultures and different societies, you will see where God has done in the past, has reached into that, those societies. And he's, he's allowed his truth to be revealed within the culture and setting of these different people groups. So let us move forward. Acts 17.7. And it goes on to say this, and Jason has let them stay in his home. Now, who's speaking here? These jealous Jewish men going forward. All of them are defying the decrees of what? The emperor, because they assert that there is another King Yeshua. So if you cannot argue a point with somebody and you're losing the debate, what happens? You personally attack them. Don't we see that going on in politics today? So with this, to get the pagan leaders to drive out Paul, Rav Shaul, and Silas out of the community, they begin making false accusations. Because Rav Shaul never says, hey, Yeshua is now the king, and you need to stop uh, following what the emperor is telling you what to do. That never took place. So now bring up a uh, disunity in the community and have, if they can capture Paul, Rav Shaul, and Sila, and put him in jail, to have them beaten or even put to death. Notice that in Acts 16, what was Rav Shaul and Sila dealing with? the same thing. See, our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, he has new, no new tactics. And what did Yeshua say? If they do these things unto me, will they not do the same unto you? 
And we're not to be afraid because in that hour and that time that they bring you before the authorities, and think about this, my brothers and sisters, as world governments are changing, as the world governments are become more paganized, believers will be brought before authorities. And they will be accused of all kinds of horrendous, heinous things for their mouths to be silent. What are we as believers to do? Don't worry and think what we're supposed to say, but allow the spirit of the living God to speak through us. See the template that's being set here in the first century that was, is to be lived out for every century to be lived out. As a kihilat, those called out who are proclaiming the good news, the enemy has the same tactics. And God has given us a provision to proclaim the good news. And so let us go forward here. They assert that there's another king. So let's go a little bit, dig a little bit deeper here. These accusations were also made against whom? But Yeshua at his own trial. Remember when Yeshua was standing there before Pilate? And he asked him this question. Pilate asked him, are you a king? And what does Yeshua say? My kingdom is not of this earth. Otherwise, my servants would be doing what? They would, would be causing it so I would not be turned over to you at this time. Yeshua declared himself as a king. And what was written on the, on, on the, on the marker, on the sign, that when Yeshua was dying, and who wrote that, had that written? But Yeshua is what? The king of the Jews. Let's go forward here. And so this false accusation that, that, uh, that Rav Shaul and Sila was promoting a brand new kingdom that was what to, to, to replace the Roman kingdom was not true. See, because this kingdom dwells in the hearts and minds of people who fully commit and submit themselves to the Lord God, King of Israel, who is Yeshua himself. Now let us go back to Acts 17.8. But I must read 17.7 first in the context, because then you lose the flow. And Jason has let them stay in his home. All of them now are, are defying the decrees of the emperor because they assert that there's another King Yeshua. Their words threw the crowd and authorities into what? Into turmoil. Chaos. You're speaking against the emperor. Going forward in verse 9. So that only after Jason and the others had posted bond did they let them go? Notice this. There wasn't an earthquake that set them free. And the jailer there, if they were put in the, into prison, he's not coming and he's now asking, what must I do to be saved? See, Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17, God is doing something different. He's allowing brand new babes in Messiah, who are Jews, 
to understand and realize that if you live for Adonai, you will face persecution. And even from your own people, because they don't understand. There's a veil before their eyes. And you know what? Think of this in the context of this. Rav Shaul once had a veil over his eyes, and he was persecuting those and bringing, arresting those who were followers of the way, which now he's proclaiming as the way, the truth, and the life to Adonai is only through Yeshua. And so he understands personally, because he walked down that path. He lived that out. And it only took from the veil being removed from his eyes over a period of time and revelation upon revelation and revelation, what the Tanakh says. You know what's amazing? How many Christian believers don't even read the Tanakh? How can you even begin to understand the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, if you do not have a firm foundation in the Tanakh? This was a scripture that was bringing salvation. It wasn't Matthew through Revelation. It has not even been written yet. It's beginning to be lived out. See, God's salvation is in the Tanakh. But it appears as a veil. There's a veil in front of the Christian church today. They don't fully realize and understand the importance of the Tanakh. You cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you understand Daniel, Ezekiel, and all what the prophets have written about these last days that we're now living in. Otherwise, you will misinterpret what God is doing, and you will be led astray. Let's go forward now. In verse 10, But as soon as night fell, the brothers sent Shaul and Silah off to where? To Berea. As soon as they arrived, they went where? Into the synagogue. They didn't go to First Baptist Church and say, hey, we'd like, we have some scripture to share with you. It doesn't exist. Let's go forward here. Verse 11. Now the people here were more nobler character. You need to pause right there. Who's that speaking to? It's speaking to this that there of the majority of Jews that were living in Thessalonica, they were not of a great moral character. Now, who makes that observation? Not me. The spirit of the living God who is now speaking through who? Luke, who is in the future writing the book of Acts. And I tell you this, the spirit of truth leads us into all truth. Can we trust what he says as being true? Absolutely. Let's go forward here. Now the people who were of noble character than the ones in Thessalonica, they eagerly welcomed the message. See, because they were searching. They were searching for the Messiah to come. You know what's beautiful in the Orthodox Jewish community around the world? They're crying out, Messiah, come, we need you now. But the veil is still upon their eyes. They see part of God's salvation, but they haven't seen him yet. The full truth and revelation 
who Messiah Yeshua is. See, they were searching for Messiah. We as Jews have been searching for Messiah for centuries to come. And only those who had the veil removed from their eyes can see Messiah for who he is. And so when you're praying and interceding for your Jewish friends or neighbors or co-workers, ask for the Spirit of the living God to begin to remove the veil from their eyes so they can see the Messiah. Let's go forward here. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now the people here were a noble character than the ones in Thessalonica. They eagerly welcomed the message, checking what? Checking the opinion of the rabbi or what the sages said? No, they read the Tanakh themselves. They knew the Tanakh. They knew that this and this, the Tanakh is going to reveal who Mashiach, who Messiah is. And what we're to be doing, because you know what our assignment is as Jewish people? But to bring the good news to the world. We can't do that until we have received the Messiah. Because he, in a person, is salvation. Let's go forward here. So checking the Tanakh every day to see if the things Shaul was saying were true. See, whenever we hear someone preach and teach God's word, are we just supposed to say, well, this person has a, a reputation. Anything that proceeds from their mouth is true. How they applied it, how they interpret it. No, we're to search the scriptures. To find fault in them, no. But to know this, to allow the Spirit of the living God to lead us into all truth, and for us to have the right interpretation, revelation, what God's word is for us, and to how to apply it to our daily lives. That's where the safety is. See, God wants all his Talmudim to do what? All his disciples to be doing what? Making disciples. How do you do that? Through the word of God. It's not through your light show, your worship service, this, that, the other. It is the word of God that will not return void because it is life. It brings life. Let's go forward. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 12. Many of them came to trust as did a number of prominent Greek women and not a few Greek men. Now let us dig a little bit deeper here into Berea. Such open-mindedness today is similarly welcomed, where in the Messianic Jews is praiseworthy. If people who are truly God's seekers are seeking for God to reveal his truth to them, he will do that. Does not the Tanakh say this? Search me with all your heart, and then you shall find me. Who's speaking there but Adonai himself? He wants to reveal himself to all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every people group upon this earth. He wants to know them intimately. See, he says, search me and I shall be found. But you have to do it with what? Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do we as believers still pursue the Lord as we once did? 
or have our hearts become cold? Let's move forward. Praise be unto God. We can now say and be confident that when the good news is given in this, this sort of fair hearing, when Jewish people and any people group are truly pursuing to seek the mind of the Lord, and the hearers rely on the facts that are included in the Tanakh, the Tanakh has truth. And to verify the message, and then to respond today, it will often be like this, like the men of Berea. Because I truly believe this. I cannot prove it to you, but I believe that the synagogue in Berea probably was the very first Messianic synagogue outside of the land of Israel. Since these Bereans, can you imagine that? They're searching the Tanakh every day, and they're getting daily revelation. Slowly, the veil is being removed from their eyes more and more and more. Think of the impact on their lives, because these were men of noble character. Think about the time when they would travel in the near future to go up to Thessalonica. And they came and they proclaimed the good news of who Yeshua was. Because the Thessalonica Jews knew this, that these men were of even more noble character. And think about this. Rav Shaul and Sila and Timothy are being multiplied. You know, the history of all what the Talmudim did has not been recorded that we can read today. But think about heaven. All the testimonies are going to go, go forward about how this Berean synagogue impacted the people living there. Let's now move forward. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Back to Acts chapter 17, going on to verse 14, 13, excuse me. But when the unbelieving Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Shaul in Berea as well, they went there to do what? To cause trouble. Why? Because the veil is still before their eyes. And they're not seeing clearly. They're not hearing the voice of God and doing his bidding. Let's move forward. They went to make trouble and to do what? To agitate the crowds. What's going on in America right now? A lot of agitation. Who's behind all that? Hasatan. Hasatan wants to bring what? Hamas, terrorism, to the whole world. Agitators. And what does, what does Hasatan want to bring in people's lives and the lives of the believer? Agitation. To bring division. That's how he conquers through division. And what is his focal point right now? The body of Messiah. Isn't it beautiful? God has given us Zoom and other ways for us to get together. Not literally in person, but for such a time as this, he's made this provision. Let's rejoice in it. In God's provision for such a time as this. Let's now go forward here. In verse 14. The brothers sent Shaul away. 
at once to go down to the seacoast, while Sila and Timothy stayed behind. Notice this is a transition here. They're sending him out like as a spearhead to go and proclaim the good news. But there's a time of discipleship needed here in the city of Berea. And who's then exalted? And the Spirit of the living God is now speaking through as they lay hands on. Because you know what they're doing? They're raising up elders within this synagogue who are Messianic Jews. And Shamashim, which are deacons. They're raising up the Messianic community there. So that they would be what? Built upon a firm stone and foundation. Who is Messiah? And also what? Else is part of that foundation, the Tanakh, the scriptures, built upon the scriptures. See, it's all about God's word, his revelation, to be lifting people up and building them up in what? Their holy, complete faith. So now let us go forward here. Verse 1715. Shaul's escort. Notice that. Did you notice that? It doesn't mention the escort's name. Let's go forward. Shaul's escort went with him as far as Athens, then left with instructions for Sila and Timothy to come as quickly as they could. Now, why is Rav Shaul now asking this, come as quickly as, as he can? If you would now take a look at your maps, find Thessalonica, find Berea. Do you know this, that in most maps, the distance from Berea to now to Athens is 400 or more miles? You know, in that time and setting, to travel three to five miles was a full day journey. If you were doing it, on foot, or by cart, or by horse, or by donkey, or by camel, or by on a boat. It took time. So he's saying, I want them to come quickly. And so you know what? He's not sending a letter. He turned to his escort, which I believe was also someone who was kind of watching his back. And he sent a person to go to give a personal message. Think of the time. For them to, now to for him to turn back, to get on a ship, pay for the passage, and now travel there on the ocean, the sea, and then later to get to the port and then to walk all the way back or ride back to Berea. This took time, but you know time was of the essence because the Spirit of the Living God was speaking to Shaul and saying, now, I've now anointed you now to go to the city of Athens. And what is Athens filled with? Pagan people who do not know Messiah. People who are walking in darkness are now about to see a light. Not just any light, not a comet, not the sun, but the Shekinah. Or some people say, Shekinah glory, a God being revealed to them. Let us now begin here in Acts chapter 17, 16. While Shaul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit within him was disturbed 
at the sight of what? Of a city full of idols. Our Torah reading today dealt with dealing with idols as the children of Israel were entering into the land of Israel. And what they were told to do for such a time as that. Now, if Rav Shaul would open up the Tanakh and read out Davrim in that passage, if he wasn't being led by the Spirit of the living God, he probably would have picked up some kind of a heavy hammer and started breaking these idols up. And what most likely would have happened? He probably would have been arrested, had gone to trial, and probably put to death. But you see, that was not what the Spirit was leading him to do. And so he's, he wasn't born in the land of Israel. He was born in Tarsus. What was, was Tarsus? Tarsus was a pagan city. So he grew up in a city that had idols in it, pagan idols. So he knew about these idols. He knew what, the, what these idols represented. He probably most look, likely knew how these people worshiped their gods as they went through their times of worshiping these idols. He was not walking in ignorance, but having full knowledge. And beyond that, he had the spirit of the living God speaking to him. So now he looks at these idols. What happens? He's troubled in his heart because you know what? He knows that these idols are leading these people astray for generations. These people have been being led astray because they don't know the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But all these false idols. And who's behind every false idol and false God? But Hasatan himself. Well, let us go forward here. Whilst Shaul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit within him was disturbed at the sight of the city full of idols. So he began holding discussions. He probably walked to him and said, well, tell me about this idol. I believe this. He feigned not understanding what this idol represented, but he opened up bridges of discussion so these individuals could start share about what these idols represented. So he began holding discussions, where? In the synagogue, with the Jews and the god fears. Why did he go there first? Because they would be the most recipient to his presentation of the good news. And in the market square every day with people who happened to be there. He would just simply strike up a conversation with them. So now let us dig a little bit deeper in 17.7. In Athens, Shaul discussed the good news in the synagogue with the Jews. This was his usual way of doing things. And with the God-fearers, because these were like bridging the gap towards those pagans. Because these people had come out of pagan idolatry and come to know the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these people, the God-fearers and the Jews, would be more, most receptive to what? To the good news. Why? Because they had a foundation stone within them, which was what? The Tanakh. So moving forward. 
and he also spoke in the market square, the most prominent public gathering places with people who happened to be there. So Shaul now tried to reach anyone he could so that he went to where the people had been. And he had a time to talk with them and, and to listen to them. Back and forth, communication. This is the example of street evangelism in the Brit Hadashah. Have any of you ever done that in the past? Gone out, walked on the street corner, went to the marketplace, had a Bible in your hand, or maybe some tracks that you had, you're passing out tracks, and you were sharing the good news with people? See, Rashul's not walking up there with a bunch of scrolls in his arms. He's simply speaking and relating in the marketplace. And you know what? In the marketplace, as he's dealing with these pagan people, he's got to start speaking about their culture and picking out the pearls out of their culture, the diamonds and the rubies that God has already laid there. Because if you read in uh, the book of Brigitte, God has placed in the heart and man of every man, woman, and child, a desire and vacuum to seek out God. And there are stories in every culture of leading them towards Adonai. So let us go forward here. So Shaul did not expect others to approach him, but he went out to them. Because what is the Great Commission? Go, therefore, and preach and teach the good news. And to do what? To make Talmudim, make disciples. That's God's command for us to do. And so there were two different groups right here, and I'm just going to go into the definition of these two groups, and then we'll be ending uh, our message today. How many of us have ever met a person who is an Epicurean? Most likely not. But some of their, their teachings have been passed down from generation to generation. How many people have met a Stoic philosopher in their lifetime? These are teachings and doctrines that are being laid out. This is part of the Greek culture, which Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, was familiar with. See, when he grew up as a boy in Tarsus, these teachings were out there. Because you know what? These teachings are already 100, day, 100 years older. So let us dig a little bit deeper. Because we got to understand the culture of the people here. So the followers of Epicurus, that was a man, he lived from 341 to 270 before the common era. He denied the, he denied the, ex, the existence of a purposeful God. Okay? He truly, he truly believed this, that there was a God out there, but he had no plan. He simply did what he wanted to do going forward. And he believed that the universe was originated by chance. And yet, how did it happen? This was his opinion. 
of falling rain and atoms. Did you hear that? This was his belief. This is how the universe came about. It just happened to rain someday. Well, where did the cloud come from? Oh, don't worry about that. This is how it happened. Just believe me. I know. I'm your teacher. Going forward. They mocked the popular pagan gods of their day and their mythology because they were more learned. They had higher intellect. Going forward. Their view was of the soul was that it was materialistic. The pursuit of joy and happiness in the world is the more stuff you have, the more people you own, because you know what? Slavery was going on in that Greek culture and Roman culture. Let's move forward. It, it dissolved and dissipated at death. Okay? When you die, you're dead, just like a dog. See, that was her opinion. Man does not have a soul. There's no eternal life. Going forward. Thus, the aim of life was what? To make yourself personally joyful beyond any thought or comprehension. It's all about you. Going forward here. It is not in the pursuit of a higher or externally given moral or spiritual interest. Meaning this, spirituality, it doesn't matter. There's no moral code. It's whatever feels good to you. And if you're the king of the mountain, everyone else is your slaves, and their existence is for your pleasure and your pleasure alone. Think about the moral depravity. Think about the compassion. There is none. Going forward, gratification could be gross or sordid if one desired it to be so. It was inclined and esoteric and refined. Today's successors to the Epicureans speak of what? Doing your own thing. Like today, what's happening in people's minds and hearts? Whatever I want to do, I will simply do it. No one can, can rule and reign over me. Epicureans speak of doing their own thing in their unabashed selfishness and is rarely the improving of the common good of others. And so they would say this was their, their way of speaking. So as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, I'll continue to live this life. Okay, there's one group, the Epicureans, a philosophy. A religion. The second one was the Stoics. Now let's, now let's look at the Stoics. They were pantheists. They believed in all these pagan gods for whom God was merely a word standing for some vague spirit of reason in the universe. Remember Star Wars? What was the big saying there? May the force be with you. Where did that come from? These Stoics. Going forward, they understood the soul to be a physical, physical form, a literal form, not a spirit form. And at death would somehow absorb itself into the blurry, blurriness of God. 
Now you may be thinking, that kind of sounds like Eastern mysticism and all these Eastern cults. You're on the right path. Let's go forward. All the major Eastern religions and certain seemingly Western offshoots of this have at the bottom similar theology and what they're based on. That there is no transcendent God who created anything. And the rules of the universe independently are run from human beings and their imagining of all these things. So now the Stoic moral code was that in some ways higher than that of the Epicureans. Because remember the Epicureans was basically this. It's all about me, not about you. And everything I gain in my life is for my own pleasure going forward. But for them, the highest was to be very, very strict and to have apathy about the cares and concerns of others. Many of them annihilated people today repress the genuine hurt and guilt they ought to feel in attempt to evaluate their annihilation into philosophy, thus ending up with a version of a Stoicism. In this philosophy, pleasure is not good and evil is not good. It's basically this. Well, you have your truth, but I have my truth. But if my truth is aligned with your truth, I don't care because I have my own truth. Going forward. In this philosophy, pleasure is not good and pain is not evil, for nothing really matters. Who cares? You're going to live. You're going to die. Who cares? That's the thought. This becomes the guide, but when reason finds nothing left to live, suicide becomes the reasonable action. You know what's amazing? The first two leaders of the Stoic philosophy committed suicide. Because they basically said this, what's the purpose of life? I find no pleasure. Why should I continue living? And so with this, both Stoicism and Epicureanism oppose biblical faith and trust in a one divine God. So in this present verses, we see now how Shaul is expressing what? God's love. Because you know what? From their theology, God was either a power that you tapped into or someone who didn't really care about you basically started something out of nothing and then just simply walked away? How many Eastern religions are based on those lies? And so now he's now proclaiming a God of love and mercy and kindness and compassion. And this God sent his only begotten son to die on your behalf to die and raise, be raised from the dead so that you could have eternal life in and through him. So think about this. Rav Shaul is there all by himself in this huge city of Athens. And he is God's man to bring light of the good news to a people who are walking in utter depravity and darkness. 
I will end today's message part three on that note.